1: But still, it's the right thing to do. So get options based on your needs with Progressive's Name Your Price tool. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and third-party insurers. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy.
0: 92% of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later.
3: All because of a fancy bike?
0: Not just bikes. We also make a rower. Have you ever tried to row? Too hard. Not with form assist, it actually teaches you how to row. So it doesn't matter if you're a first-time rower or a seasoned pro, Peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals. 92% stick with it, so can you. Try the Peloton Row risk-free with a 30-day home trial. New members only, not available in remote locations. See additional terms at onepeloton.com home
2: dash trial. Welcome to Let It Roll, the story of how and why rock and roll happened with Ed Ward and Nate Wilcox. time to let it roll today ed ward and i will be filling in a gap in our discussion of his epic history of rock and roll part one 1920 to 1963 with a discussion of the evolution of african american music from blues and jazz through swing to rhythm and blues focusing on great performers from bessie smith to louis jordan as always you can access our youtube playlist and learn more about the episodes on our website LetItRollPodcast.com. This week, Ed and I talk about how African-American pop music transformed itself through the swing era, the rise and fall of the blues queens, the thin line between jazz and blues, the first guitar heroes, and the greatest American musical superstar you've probably barely heard of, Louis Jordan. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Welcome to Let It Roll, I'm Nate Wilcox, your host, joined once again by Ed Ward, author of History of Rock and Roll Volume 1 1920 to 1963 and today we're filling in a little gap in our chronology we're going to be talking about the 1930s and 1940s in African American music the evolution from swing to rhythm and blues so welcome Ed well, thank you very much this is this is a fairly big topic before we dive into the 30s i want to there's two trends from the 20s we talked about the 20s a little bit but i want i wanted to refresh two trends from the 20s that I think have a big impact on the 30s and 40s and where music goes. And the first is the blues queens. You talk in your book about how Mamie Smith uh, had the first, what they called a race record, which we would now call, uh, I guess, an R&B record or a record marketed to the African-American audience in crazy blues, which wasn't a blues, but it was a massive hit. Right, and it sold so
4: many copies that the record company realized that it wasn't just black people buying the record, that there were a substantial number of white people who were interested in hearing this kind of, this kind of music. So that led, that led to the, um, the already uh, performing people like, the, like you say, the blues queens, these women who are doing tent shows and, and black vaudeville getting uh, recording contracts, and also selling well.
2: And this is very distinct from what our modern listeners probably think of when they think of old blues, which, you know, the, the image of Robert Johnson in the Mississippi Delta, hunched over a microphone, solo man with a guitar. Um, this is very different stuff. This is a professional performer who's a vaudeville or menstrual show veteran singing with what we would consider like a Dixieland jazz combo. Yeah,
4: a, a combo with horns
2: and, and um, uh, sometimes
4: drums, although they didn't make it onto the record because of the acoustic recording problem. But uh, yeah, I mean, this was this was something you'd go you'd go for a night out on the town to see, even if it was a, in a tent show. You know, you, you'd want to get dressed up and go out there and meet your friends.
2: And and so one thing that I was sort of surprised to discover getting ready for the show, was that a young Coleman Hawkins backed Mamie Smith. And and that, to me, really hammered home this connection between jazz and the blues queens and and probably the realization that these distinctions are somewhat artificial and imposed post-facto. Yeah, they definitely are. I mean, back
4: then there was no marketing, and you're thinking like a marketing man. Um, This was just, you know, throw it out there and see what they buy. There was a lot of they
2: didn't buy. Yeah, and there's a flood of imitators of Mamie Smith, but there's two I wanted to to hit on. First was Ma Rainey, who claimed to have invented the style before recording. You know, uh, well, Ma
4: and Pa Rainey were with the um, the Lightfoot, um,
3: the Rabbitfoot
4: minstrels. Yeah, yeah, a- and uh, this this was a this was a black minstrel troupe that goes back years. Um, it, it you know Rufus Thomas got his his start there uh, in the twenties or thirties I can't remember exactly when uh, but as a as a child dancer and comedian you know this was a, one of these things that just went on and on and on Um Ma and Pa Rainey build themselves as the destroyers of the blues and I think that I, I saw references to this back in the teens. I mean, like 1916 or something, that they were billing themselves like that. I don't know what happened to Pa, but Ma uh, definitely was a showstopper and and a, a, a real star. She had all this wonderful fake jewelry that she'd wear, uh, elaborate gowns, and um, you know she she was a, a big star, uh, and her her public appreciated that. She sold lots of records. And these interested the um, up and coming jazz, white jazz audience, because they hadn't quite figured out what all this stuff was yet. So uh, Ma-, Ma Rainey, she—I'm sure she was older than Mamie Smith. I'm pretty sure she was doing this well before the accidental recording of, of Crazy Blues.
2: Yeah, and one thing that was interesting about Ma Rainey is that she even makes a claim to have discovered the blues independently. She's got a very a story very similar to W.C. Handy's tale you know, of hearing a, a shoeless musician by the train track. She claims to have heard a woman moaning and singing a very strange song with filled with blue notes and that she started doing it in her act and it became very popular. And uh, that kind of historical revisionism and big claims It's not something that's ended. I mean, that's a very classic American musician thing to do. And Do you think that she discovered the blues independently, or is there any way to tell? Well, you know, there was no radio back then, and if there had,
4: well, there was, but it certainly wasn't playing that kind of music. It was playing more uplifting things. So, you know, happening on this, there were no records, there was no radio. How are you going to find it? By accident. You know, you're you're a musician, and and you, know, you could be like Handy waiting for a train, or or I don't know where Ma Rainey's you know uh, discovery happened, but it was you know you were around and and you heard these things, and and uh, they interested you. I think that's all that happened with her.
2: And uh and Ma had a protege who went on to become probably the most enduring of all the blues queens, the great Bessie Smith. Right, and she was lucky enough to have attracted a uh,
4: white sponsor a major record company and was considered um, to be a jazz artist, although a primitive jazz artist, because certainly there's nothing that uh, sophisticated about musically about what she was doing.
2: Yeah, but her singing style was very influential. I mean, Joe Turner could be thought to have taking her style wholesale. And, and he's, you know, one of the great founders of jump blues and rock and roll. And once again, you're thinking like a marketing man. And, and this is
4: just, it exists outside of that whole way of thinking about commercial music.
2: But she sold a lot of records in the first part of the 20s. Oh yeah. And oh then, yeah.
4: She sold lots and lots, And she also had a good uh, manager and a, a good sense of where to appear to um, get large audiences, she was real big in major American cities with large black populations: New York, Chicago, Detroit, Kansas City. You know, she could fill a theater for several days um, in in, uh, in cities like that. She wasn't dependent on tent shows
2: through the twenties. This this is rocking and rolling. And to the depression in a minute, but first I want to introduce the other trend from the 20s that I think is especially relevant to the 30s and 40s, and that's the discovery of Blind Lemon Jefferson and the even more exciting discovery that he could sell a lot of records just. And this guy was sort of the proverbial blues man, the man alone with his guitar. One
4: man, one guitar, and a whole bunch of songs. He was a he was a great curator of material. Uh, I don't think. You know if truth serum were applied to him, that he would admit to having written very many of the things he performed. A lot of them used floating verses, you know, they were just things he made up on the spot.
2: Yeah, and, and the, the record format sort of codified what these blues artists was, were doing in a way that didn't happen in their natural milieu of, like in Blind Lemon Jefferson's case, of playing on the street corners. You know, right. if you made up a song one day on the street corner, you play it slightly differently the next day, no big deal. But if he puts out a record, it's it's sealed. It's history. Right. And not only that, a lot of this music, the, a lot of this country
4: blues was dance music. That's where it it was performed, and that's how its its players made money. You know, uh, you can hear this. There's a wonderful recording by uh, Mississippi Joe Calico, uh, and I think Ishman Bracey, where there's two guys playing guitars, Cotton Crop Blues, one of the most exciting, rhythmically charged records you've ever heard played on acoustic instruments. Uh, And and it was also recorded as as part one and part two. And I've got a CD where they've edited the two sides of the 78 together, so the rhythm never
2: stops. An an important point to make about the in this period was a lot of times historians have tended to make claims for the blues as being a very archaic music that connects directly back to African roots. When in actuality, in the teens and twenties, this was seen as the latest pop fad. This was the hot new well, there's, thing.
4: there's no nobody has documented the AAB blues form, you know, with the attendant chord progressions much before 1900. Before then, there was another tradition, uh, which also used blue notes and also used fancy guitar, but it was the songster tradition, and it was more like ballads, or, or it just wasn't that rigid AAB form that you can hear all those blues singers from the most sophisticated down to the most primitive
2: using. And it's a very enduring form that goes all the way up. I mean, James Brown was still doing his funk hits in a in a basic twelve-bar format in the late '60s. So, but Blind Lemon Jefferson's uh, the discovery of Blind Lemon Jefferson and the discovery that he could sell lots of records that triggers sort of a land rush on uh, African American guitarists and all over the South that kind of parallels what Ralph Peer was doing in in country music in the same period.
4: Well, yeah, and there was AC Spear, who had a, a, a general store in Mississippi where a lot of black people came in and bought records. And also they asked if they could make a record. So he put up a little demo studio in the back of the store and send demo records off to Paramount and American Recording Company and OK and a number of these places. And uh, he was responsible for discovering most of the major Mississippi blues stars uh, in that era. He he got paid a flat fee. This wasn't like the the white man exploiting the black man for his royalties. There were no royalties. But he was the great talent scout in the Mississippi Delta, finding these performers, and it was cheap. Honest to God, one guy, one guitar, three minutes per song. How many you got? Okay. Can you find some more? Come back in six months if these sell. We'll let you know. Bye.
2: And and that's how we came to be gifted with the music of Charlie Patton and Robert Johnson and Son House and Skip James and all these other Delta musicians. But they weren't right. especially commercially successful at the time. Well, they started late
4: in terms of commercial success. Number one, it was an alien sound. If you had you know, clarinets and trombones and such backing you up like the blues queens did. That was a more friendly sound for white people. White people did not buy country blues, except for a very, very few, many of them foreign, who heard something in this. Um, John Hammond was one of these people, not foreign, he was from New York, but uh, he heard this music and he realized where it came from, and what could be done with it. Uh, he unfortunately did not get to do much of it, but um, he, did, uh, he did realize, along with this very tiny minority of, of jazz fans, that it was happening and it was valid.
2: And, and when you talk about coming into it late, the thing was the depression hits at the end of the 20s and the beginning of the 30s, and basically kills the record industry. Well, what it did was it reduced
4: the base for buying these records who who were not wealthy. The the wealthy Black people, to the extent that they existed in significant numbers, they were buying jazz. They they were buying Black Broadway. They were buying more, quote-unquote, sophisticated music, whereas the country blues and stuff sold to, well, it sold to homesick Black people who'd gone to Detroit or Chicago because the the work was better up there a- and it also sold around home because there were places like Mr. Spears store where you could go in and say you know that guy who was playing around the plantation last week he has some records oh yeah let me see and, and but they had the, the money to spend on those things and on phonographs which were a great initial investment that you but they didn't you know they didn't wear out so uh, once you had your phonograph, then you could buy phonograph records. But after the Depression hit, those were the very first people to suffer economic uh, stricture to to the point where they, they couldn't afford entertainment. Or if they did have entertainment, it was a dime to get into the tent show rather than, I forget what it was, 39 cents, 49 cents for for a 78, which only got you two
2: songs. You know that your your tent show would give you two three hours of entertainment, and and so the depression pretty much kills the blues queens and and the original blues guitarists that era dead, but Bessie Smith thanks to John Hammond does get to do one last set of sessions, and I found this fascinating. I mean she's playing with Jack Teagarden, Benny Goodman even takes a look in. I mean Hammond really set her up with some pretty A list and an integrated a list band right. of jazz musician. Well, he was he was always like that. I mean,
4: he he came from an extremely wealthy background. He was a very wealthy man, which you can tell just from the story of his discovery of Count Basie. He heard him on his car radio. Who had radios in cars back then? Only very wealthy people with very expensive cars. It was a Hudson, I believe. You know, not your Model T at all. And he was, he was very left-leaning in his politics, too. He was a, he was a very progressive man. So, you know, it, it wasn't a, a tremendous surprise that his love of jazz encompassed um, white jazz, black jazz. And he really didn't see the difference between Bessie Smith and Jack Teagarden.
2: And, and brought him together and was able to add to her discography before her tragic death in a car wreck in the South which Hammond right. claimed she died because uh, she wouldn't be admitted to a white hospital. But I believe that's not, that's been debunked. It has
4: been. Yes. Uh, she, she was too badly injured. Uh, if she had had the accident across the street from a hospital, well, that would have been one thing, but she didn't. Yeah. Um, it made for, it made for a great stage play, but unfortunately she, I'm sure she endured enough discrimination in her life that, uh, her death didn't, doesn't need to be part of that legend. Um, yeah, and, and don't forget, ha- Hammond also encouraged Benny Goodman to integrate his small band. So Teddy Teddy Wilson and Charlie Christian were in there. Um, a- and, you know, if they couldn't play the South,
2: well, the hell with the South. Goodman was a big enough draw. and And we'll get back to the Hammond connection, because that's a big part of our story. But I want to talk about what happens next in African-American music, which is a discount label in Chicago called Bluebird that figures out a way to make yeah, that was cheaper. That was the cheapo. Everybody had a cheapo label
4: where they'd reissue former hits at a lower price or they'd throw out experimental stuff or they'd just, you know, record what they could. Bluebird not only recorded... The famous blues stable that everybody knows now but it had country performers too uh there were a couple of western swing bands that were on bluebird the, uh, the blue sky boys were on bluebird but what they're mostly remembered for is this bunch of southern musicians uh, from all different places who recorded together as as a sort of impromptu band they never all recorded together on the same session but The same people showed up on other people's sessions, Washboard, Sam, um, who else? Um, Big Bill
2: Brunsey was a big part of that studio band. Right. um, Josh White. The the duet I really wanted to feature was Tampa Red and Georgia Tom, which that sort of gives you an idea of their geographic uh, disparity, Tampa, Florida, and and Georgia. Uh, But they recorded together in Chicago. And first, that's where all these black people had gone. So Chicago's this huge urban magnet, and and talent magnet. Jazz had already sort of moved there from New Orleans in the twenties, and then these blues duets, Tampa Red uh, on guitar and Georgia Tom on piano, and they have a big hit with "It's Tight Like That," which is um, I forgot to mention. Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith both doing songs like "Shave It Dry," which were very uh, risque and double entendre so it wasn't completely oh, yeah. new but tight like that definitely continues that tradition of risque blues songs that we talked about so much in the 50s oh
4: it's all it's been going on forever i mean because the these people were not respectable that's the whole point is is that a lot of this music came out of brothels and and uh, you know low down bars and stuff and, and somebody, a professional like Bessie Smith could pick this stuff up and select the material that she thought she could get away with on stage and didn't make it a centerpiece of her act, but did it as a, as a form of notoriety. You know, is she going to do that song? And maybe she would, maybe she wouldn't.
2: And, and one thing I find kind of ironic about Tampa Red and Georgia Tom is that Georgia Tom was Georgia Tom Dorsey who's also known, perhaps better known, as the father of gospel. I mean, this is the man who wrote, Take My Hand, Precious Lord, and Peace in the Valley.
4: He had a conversion uh, ex- experience around the death of one of his children. And he he had always been slightly guilty about, you know, this is a, a story that gets repeated a lot, all the way down into the, you know, classic soul music. These people who have this impulse that they want to perform, but... Maybe the church will get in their way, but you know you don't make a lot of money singing gospel music, or, or you 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 didn't in the fifties and sixties. But back then, gospel music was just starting. I mean, we can say I believe that, that among the people who invented the whole genre of black gospel, uh, which had existed. In on recordings with guitar evangelists, you know, like Blind Willie Johnson, or or um well, she played piano, but Arizona Drains. Uh, but these people were they were unusual. The the idea that you, you're starting a canon, as you said, you know, Precious Lord, Take My Hand, Peace in the Valley, that you are writing these melodies for um, use by choirs or by professional gospel singers or gospel groups. Um this is what he was in on the ground floor of. And this was one of the things that helped save the the record business uh, through the 30s was the discovery of local gospel scenes. Montgomery, um, Alabama, the the so-called Clanka lanka singers, where um, the uh, lead singer would be singing a line and and the harmony, would be saying the, the words clank a lanka, clank a lanka, clank a did because it was a cappella. They didn't have a, a band. But the songs that Dorsey and, and his fellow songwriters wrote, um, especially when the AME Zion Church approved uh, the use of sacred pop music, as it were, in, in its services and as a fundraising event, where, where there was a, a whole gospel circuit where these these groups eventually hit the road just like jazz performers did and, and went from church to church to revival to the occasional big show in an auditorium. You know, this this was what he was at the ground floor of. And, and there are other
2: big talents. We mentioned Big Bill Brunzi is around Bluebird, and frequently he would record for other labels as a singer, but he was hanging around Bluebird playing on tons of their sessions and was a member of the Hokum Boys. I'm not sure if this was after Georgia Tom had his conversion experience, but Bill Br- Brunsie joins Tampa Red's Hokum Boys later on and he becomes quite a songwriter. I think Brunsie and Tempered, I mean, as a Gen X age fan, they were just overwhelming because there's this enormous discography. None of it really stands out. And part of that, that, that was the
4: big thing about Bluebird—was was all the records sounded the same, and yeah. the material wasn't there.
2: But if you filter it down, I mean, Brunzi's writing songs like "I Can't Be Satisfied" and "Key to the Highway," and and you know has a good, as good a book of blues originals as anybody of his era, and right. and again with Tampa Red and George Tom, it's easy to find a really solid, you know, 20, 25, 30 song set of these guys. So right. I, w- I would urge you not to be too intimidated um, by that. But the other guy going on, and I don't think he was on bluebird, but Leroy Carr had a song called how long, how long blues and, uh, um, Blackwell and Leroy Carr. Very,
4: very underestimated. I mean, Bob Dylan went on a rant about that once about
2: how this guy was one of the best selling black performers of his era. And a great singer and a, You know, his singing style is a direct influence on, you know, Charles Brown, uh, all the way through Sam Cooke. I mean, Ray Charles was heavily influenced by him. I mean, this guy, uh, one of the absolute key performers of this era. And again, somebody I was completely ignorant of until I started researching this project. And it does seem like there was a phenomenon where more obscure artists like Skip James, who sold maybe 18 records in their heyday, were fetishized, you know, by record collectors. Whereas Leroy Carr, it wasn't hard to find seventy-eights by Leroy Carr because everybody right. bought them. Uh,
4: yeah, he sold millions of records.
2: And uh, you know, he did. He was an alcoholic, and he died fairly young in the mid-thirties at, at age thirty. But you know, this is a guy who's definitely well worth checking out. And and like I said, his his style uh, is a direct influence on so many singers. I mean, much more influential. On the, on the next generation of African American performers, than Robert Johnson, for example.
4: Nobody ever heard Robert Johnson except down home. Yeah. Well,
2: that's not true. He, he hit the road and
4: he performed. He performed in New York. He performed in Chicago, Detroit, uh, and we know this, you know, be, because the people who traveled with him, Johnny Shines, most particularly, um, they remembered this, and, and it's it's important that for all uh that robert johnson was lionized by people like eric clapton um he was in the commercial scope of things a fairly minor person he had one record that sold his first record terraplane blues and to the extent that he had any further recording sessions it was an attempt to record another terraplane blues
2: and it never happened and Johnson dies just before his discovery, because John Hammond was trying to track Johnson down to be part of this concert he put on in Carnegie Hall in Christmas of 1938, From Spirituals to Swing. Right. And it was very interesting that Hammond
4: knew about him because he was recording for the company that Hammond was employed by, uh, one of the branches of Columbia Records, which was the American Recording Company
2: and 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 hammond ends up replacing robert johnson with big bill Brunsie. he, he Brunsey then spent the rest of his life saying
4: i'm the only delta blues man still alive you should have heard those boys when they were alive but up oh, too bad you just you stuck with me and then all of a sudden the folky guys in the 50s and 60s started pulling the people that Brunsie were saying was dead uh Pulling them out of the swamps and going, "Hey, look! This guy's alive. Hey, look! This other guy's alive. Hey, look! This guy never even got documented by records, and he's alive." You know, Mississippi Fred McDowell. <laughs> yeah, and, and- Brindley, Brindley was a showbiz guy. He had he had uh, he had his eye on on a uh, specific career, and uh, he made sure he got it. And but the other thing that happened at at spirituals to swing was Boogie Woogie.
2: Yeah, and I'm and, uh, definitely going to get to that, um, because Albert Ammons and me, Lux Lewis, play, and also a duet, Big Joe Turner and Pete Johnson play Roland Right," Pete, which is definitely part proto- rock woogie. and roll. Yeah, Boogie Woogie and rock and roll. And, and Lewis and Ammons have been having hits since, like, 1930, Honky Tonk, Train, Blues, uh, for Lewis, and... Uh, but the spirituals to swing brings it to the attention of of white fans. It, it yeah, not not only white
4: jazz fans but white pop fans. It became boogie woogie became really the the fad. Everybody started recording what they called boogie woogie tunes. You know, boogie woogie bugle boy, things like that.
2: Um, yeah, Tom, oh, Tommy, the, the Andrews Sisters are what. Tommy Dorsey had a hit called "Woo Woo" with Pete Johnson uh, and Albert Evans right. playing on it. I mean, yeah, everybody gets into it, and that, to me, the boogie woogie trend—the way it exploded in the late '30s—that's a direct precursor of rock and roll because you know the absolutely country, the country boogie. And the only
4: thing that could could kill that was the was the uh, uh, shellac shortage and the um, the musician strike.
2: Yeah, which we, we talked about both of those in our in our sward episode, but those are definitely right. big factors. Another thing, though, that uh, set of artists that are featured at Spirituals to Swing, in addition to there's some gospel groups, Mitchells, Christian Singers, the Golden Gate Quartet, Hammond was trying to represent the whole sweep of African-American music. And, of course, you right. couldn't that's do that. that's why I said Spirituals to Swing. Yeah, and you couldn't do that without Swing, which was you know the dominant pop form and the dominant jazz form throughout the 30s and so you know duke ellington and count basie and benny goodman are all on that bill
4: no yeah, that that was that
2: must have been i don't think this was recorded i think they did record oh, it. They, they did or they recreated it there's a cd set that purports to be the spirituals and Swing show i haven't dived into if it's a recreation i think they added crowd effects and might have recorded it later But um, there is a set of 78s from that show.
4: they were purporting to be from that. Well, it was a way of exploiting it. I mean, everybody wanted to hear this, and Carnegie Hall is only so big.
2: And, and, And this, to me, like the whole Hammond phenomenon, is the first time we see white fans sort of imposing themselves on the music rather than being sort of a pure commercial effort or they leave African Americans to the African American African American music to the African American market. White cognoscenti like Hammond come in with ideas about things. You know, Hammond spreading not only the story about Bessie Smith's tragic death, but stra- spreading the story that Big uh, Bill, Bill Brunsie had been on an Arkansas farm until he was forty years old, which is complete horseshit. Uh- <laughs> <But> he probably <laughs> learned
4: it from Brunsie.
2: Quite possibly, and 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 the swing thing you mentioned, Goodman and Charlie Christian, which I want to come back to. But another phenomenon that's going on from the late thirties through the early forties that really connects swing to rock and roll is this trend of people like Count Basie doing songs with singers like Jimmy Rushing and Billie Holiday. Uh, you know, and Chick Webb has Ella Fitzgerald. Uh, you know, Billy Eckstein's with Earl Hines. I mean, so many of these singers are with that we think of as jump blues performers start out as part of swing orchestras
4: oh yeah you always had to have a vocalist or vocalists, or e- even better a, a, a girl singer a boy singer in a trio so you could mix that up you know when when the band is just playing chords behind a singer that's they, they're not having to be virtuosos they, this is a way of relaxing the band for a while before you go up for your next big you know, dance number,
2: and 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 that perspective of what the live performance was like, we get such a distorted view by looking at just records. I think Elijah Wald has done the best work on this topic, but even somebody like Robert Johnson was not just doing a set of "Me and the Devil" blues, even if he was playing in no. a juke joint in Mississippi. Somebody like that had to be a human jukebox who played a wide variety of hits. Right,
4: if you heard. If somebody in the audience requested a number you didn't know, well, A, you had screwed up badly because you're supposed to be right on top of everything. And, you know, it's not like there was any of this stuff was on the radio. You know, you you should be hearing this in the bars, you know, when when you're performing or when you're not performing. You should hang out in bars with music. You should find blues singers in town and learn their repertoire because people are going to want you to play. They don't care who originally did it that, that's a bit of rock authenticity that uh, we think of today but it, certainly nobody cared they
2: just wanted to hear the damn thing yeah and and yet when somebody like uh, Muddy waters is recorded by Alan Lomax who's another one of these first generation I guess he's a second generation folk revivalist after his father John Lomax's work, but he goes right. to the Delta in 1940 and records Muddy Waters, which we discussed on another episode. But when he would record something like that, he wanted to hear their most distinctive material. And he didn't care to hear Muddy's versions of Gene Autry songs and other things. Right. Muddy was said he was you playing. You better believe that Muddy, Muddy had to know that. And,
4: and Jimmy Rogers, for that matter. You know, you, you had to be able to do what your audience wanted. I mean, that's the basic rule of pop music anyway.
2: Yeah. I mean, Nowadays pop...
4: we deride cover bands, but
2: there was no such thing back then. And it was a great uh apprenticeship for musicians. They had to learn to deal with a wide variety of styles and, and expand their technique. And the point I wanted to make about Spirituals and Swing though, is it not only jump starts trends or expands on trends that are already happening like the boogie woogie thing uh, and the and the swing bands and the pop singers, but it starts a whole. It's part of a start of a whole new chain or genre of music that didn't exist before, which we call folk music, and and right. and which is it's so fascinating to me to think of it as a as this artificial construct because the whole idea was that folk music is the most natural expression of the people, and it is, I mean, these were the songs people sang, uh, you know, on their porches or to their children or uh, to their, you know, around the campfire, stuff like that, you know, untainted by the uh, commercial demands. But at the same time, it's a very artificial construct by people like Lomax and Hammond who are going back and looking at this music. And then you have musicians like Lead Belly and Josh White who had literally no connection to the African-American popular audience and yet have become... And especially Lead Billy, major figures in American musical history. Yeah, because Lomax got him out of jail and sort of became his manager.
4: And um, he wisely plugged him into the folk music, uh, the left-wing folk music establishment that was happening at that point in the 1930s, Almanac House in new york you know where pete Seeger and and, uh, woody guthrie and uh, lee hayes and many other people were both a political and an artistic i don't want to say commune but it was a a collective house where the residents were focused on the labor movement and left-wing politics and it was essential for them to represent everybody. Uh, and that's why Woody Guthrie was so popular because or, or so important to them was because he was a, a white left wing hillbilly. And all too many of the other Almanac people were Jewish or WASP East Coasters. Uh, and so Negroes were also very important and Leadbelly saw this as an opportunity for him to uh, to get some get some work. And he was. He was yeah a, 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 he didn't live at Almanac House, but he he, he hang out hung out with them like a lot like Sonny Sunny Terry and Brownie McGee.
2: Yeah and know, or uh, other people on the periphery of that. And and McGee in particular has this parallel career as an R and B singer, you know, doing as a uh, drink of wine spodio doe with his brother and everything. No, 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 no that was his brother. But he did a version, too, and was involved in that recording. Oh, okay. At least that was what Elijah Wald was saying that I was reading last night. But it's just fascinating to me that, that McGee can have this parallel career where he's playing to the white folkies and doing you know, this sort of putting on his overalls and, and doing that. And I just imagine him changing into a suit to do an R&B set uptown. Uh, yeah, sure. But And also Sonny Terry was on Broadway. He
4: played in Brigadoon. Wow! Yeah,
2: <laughs> I, I, I remember that as a as a very stark compartmentalizing. Character. This stuff doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, too much overlap. And um, before I get, there's one other thing I wanted to, connection. I wanted to make out of the spirituals and swing, which was Charlie Christian playing with Benny Goodman. And Charlie Christian's this Oklahoma guitar virtuoso, probably the first electric guitar virtuoso. But he wasn't the first jazz guitar virtuoso, which was probably a guy named Eddie Lang who was a white guy who uh, played right. in the early 30s uh, and played with a whole bunch of people uh, from the top of the jazz world uh, to playing on um, minstrel records uh, with uh, – I'm blanking on the guy's name – the guy that did Sick Blues. Uh, oh, Emm- Emmett Miller. Emmett Miller, yeah. And so Eddie Lang played on Emmett Miller records. But he also does a series of duets with a guy named Lonnie Johnson, who's this enormously important figure in African American music. Who has hit records all through the '30s. He's a virtuoso guitar player, although he's not marketed as jazz. He's seen as a bluesman, but right. he can hold his own note for note with Eddie Lang, you know, the first jazz virtuoso, and is singing these pop songs. And I think you know, if you asked a blues fan in 1940. Who was more important, Lonnie Johnson or Robert Johnson? They probably say Robert. Who? Lonnie Johnson also had hits in the fifties. He had a hit, a huge
4: hit, called Tomorrow Night, and um, got cheated out of his money by King Records for that one, and so he retired to become a doorman at a hotel in Philadelphia, where he was rediscovered by folkies.
2: Yeah, and then did not want to do the kind of material folkies wanted him to do. He was you know, doing the latest hits from Rodgers and Hammerstein and stuff like that.
4: Well, what he wanted to do was go out there and, and, and sing Tomorrow Night. Now, this I had a hit record with.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and, and then the next sort of big development around this period is a woman named Lil Green. And Bill, Bill Brunzi's involved in this as well. But she does a song called Romance in the Dark, which really combines this jazz and blues trends. Yeah, she was sort of like a blues queen who
4: stumbled into the Bluebird clique. Uh, Romance in the Dark was uh, was on Bluebird. And
2: uh, a lot of people consider it the beginning of Rhythm and Blues. And it's a, a great record. And this is Lil Green's another one that I had never heard of before, but uh, that people should definitely uh, check out. Because, like you say, it's, it's not a great
4: dope song called Knocking Myself Out.
2: <laughs> which which we'll be prone to do. And then one heir to Lonnie Johnson, I think we should mention, is a guy named T-Bone Walker, and, and a massive hit, Stormy Monday. And he's sort of a leader of a whole trend of West Coast African-Americans, musicians. Well, not exactly. Well, he's he was Texan, parallel but- with Lonnie Johnson in terms, and he also um, did a lot of recording with Basie. And, but his massive hit is Stormy Monday, which is a more sort of polished yeah, a cocktail-type song, but also a, a true blues. Well, he was from Dallas. He was an electric
4: guitarist on the blues scene there, and the jazz, somehow he got connected with the jazz audience and made a bunch of recordings. And then, yes, he went to the West Coast, where he made these sophisticated electric blues recordings like stormy monday where where the uh the guitar playing and the vocal are both top-notch and he's the guy that inspired loads and loads of other people like bb king for instance yeah single note guitar guitar style is is what went
2: through channels to you know rock guitar playing there's a straight line from t-bone walker to eric clapton yeah, and his showmanship, too. He's the guy who was playing with the guitar between his legs, with his teeth behind the head, all that stuff, which probably yeah. hurt him with the Folk Revival audience later on. I think he stuck very close to the jazz crowd and wasn't much interested. Well, the Folkies were not interested in
4: electric guitar for the most part, and he was not interested in their you know, dredging up stuff he'd done 30 years ago. I saw him at Max's Kansas City, of all things. Eventually, he wound up on ABC Bluesway when ABC was trying to promote the blues after they'd signed B.B. King away from Modern. And he played played Max's with this bunch of young funk punks with towering afros who made fun of him behind his back while they were playing. It was really, really a sad scene.
2: He was doing great.
4: They were not doing so great. They didn't know (laughs) how to back him up.
2: Yeah. Well, that's a drag. It's similar to Chuck Berry and his pickup bands, although those were usually white white boy musicians. That's his
4: own problem. (laughs) If Chuck (laughs) Berry wasn't willing to, to carry a band with him, then he got what he paid for or didn't pay for.
2: Yeah, but back to this transition from swing to R&B, and, and one guy that I think, out of all the big band leaders, probably Lionel Hampton, uh, should get a special shout-out. His song, Flying Home, uh, was is frequently cited as, as another record that's frequently cited as the first R&B record. It's got this honking sax solo by Illinois, how do you say his name, Jaquette? Jaquette. Yeah, Jaquette. Illinois Jaquette. Uh, just a a absolutely ripping record and you can hear the horn sections of the late 40s and early 50s in that record just honking Mm -hmm. away and 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 another thing hampton did was feature the work of dinah washington who's somebody else she's a lot like leroy carr in that enormously popular enormously influential and very overlooked today
4: right yeah
2: these these big
4: bands they were you know, there were a lot of them all of a sudden because they were selling records. I mean, everybody wanted to be Basie. Basie, more than Ellington. Ellington had a rather more refined uptown approach to stuff. Basie came from Kansas City where he played the blues if he didn't, you know, when he wasn't doing other stuff. He really he really was a gut bucket musician in a lot of ways.
2: He wasn't a composer or arranger to the extent that Ellington was. But very few are. But he was an absolute virtuoso and a and a great composer. But and Lionel Hampton was no slouch. But I think the person who's the avatar of this transition from swing to R and B is Louis Jordan, who can rightfully be called the father of R and B. He comes out of right. Chick Chick Webb's band and then forms his own small combo, the Timpani Five, which rarely had timpanies and was always more than five musicians. Right. He didn't care. It was a good name. <laughs> and uh, I'd go
4: into a club to see a guy play timpanis in, in a five-piece. And if the timpanis weren't there, well, that saxophone had, had, had better be good, which he was. The thing that really amazed me was discovering that the Jordan's first two recording sessions, which weren't particularly uh, successful, were produced by J. Mayo, Inc. Williams, the same man that brought of blind lemon jefferson to paramount records back in the 20s there's a book in that man and i wouldn't know how to research it but somebody must well I hope I mean, so. he, shows, he also produced muddy waters first session not that muddy was muddy was a sideman on a session and he's pretty much inaudible
2: but, that bluebird you know, that was 1948 yeah
4: no? I, I thought it was, with was on bluebird or was
2: it on columbia i, I well, I think he might have done both, but he did a, cu- a session for Bluebird with his cousin uh, and couldn't handle the swing changes his cousin wanted him to play. Um, uh, but back to Louis Jordan, Jordan is ahead of the curve on cutting down to a small combo. He does this in the late 30s right. after he quits or is fired from Chick Webb's band. And his combo, even without amplification, could play loud enough and, and what they were playing was simple enough that they could be heard. In a packed theater, uh, a packed ballroom, uh, while people danced, and this was just an enormous economic leg up because he didn't have to pay thirty salaries, and he didn't have to pay lodging, and and you know he could pack everybody into a station wagon and not have to have a right bus. instead of a
4: bus. And so when when rubber rationing came in, gas rationing came in, he was the what was it? Robert Fripp used to say, small intelligent creature who, who uh, was
2: sneaking around the dinosaurs? Something like that, yes. Yeah, very much a mammal in the in the age of the dinosaurs. And he, he uh, has a jukebox hit with Knock Me a Kiss. Doesn't make the charts, but from then on, his next record, uh, Going to Leave You on the Outskirts of Town, is a huge R&B chart hit. And then he hits the pop charts uh, with Ration Blues and then hits number mm-hmm. one on pop. Uh, with GI jive and this guy's commercial run from 1942 to 1951 is incredible i mean there were literally he years we had, where great... had the one two three four and five hit records on the r&b charts
4: right he had great commercial radar he knew just exactly what people
2: wanted when they wanted it yeah he's absolutely in touch with the the World War II crowd, and, and to both mm-hmm. white and black audiences. He's one of the very few African-American performers in this period to get across. But the downside of that for his historical reputation is this was a guy who liked to entertain. He did a lot of comedy in his act. And some of his songs, like Ain't Nobody Here But Us Chickens and Is You Is or Is You Ain't My Baby. I mean, these are great songs, but I think they put off some people who you know consider them minstrel type entertainment or that he also i mean you you
4: can see this in in the ads for his records and so forth he he had this way of popping his eyes and grinning a nice white grin that became sort of considered tomish you didn't see the blues singers who came after him doing that you know he, he and louis armstrong both you know were perceived as as uncle Toms for their, their big smiles and, and eye popping, you know, it,
2: it, it just looked minstrelly. And, and one thing to keep in mind about Jordan is that although his heyday was absolutely in the forties, he was born, I mean, he was already in his thirties by then. He was born in, I think in 1908. So he's of the same generation as Louis Armstrong. It just took him a very right. long time Uh, to become a band leader. And in fact, his father was uh, a band, I think band director for the Rabbit Foot Minstrel. So he very much was educated in that minstrel tradition. Uh, And yeah, and has been knocked for that. Another knock against him is some of the songs are samey. I mean, you know, if if you get five, six CDs into your Louis Jordan kick, you'll be hearing a lot of songs about food. Right. Well, you know, this is as much the fault of the people who were directing it his records, I mean,
4: what you would call artists and repertoire, you know, well that, that song about beans and cornbread did real well. How about another one about,
2: I don't know, cornbread and sorghum gravy or something, you know? I was definitely, uh, you know, looking for the main chance commercially, but I, I, having dived into his work pretty deeply, I think he as the father of R&B. I mean, he holds his own with Hank Williams, you know, the father of country or, uh, Ellington even. I mean, maybe not in the grand sweep of Ellington as a classical musician, but well, Ellington is the king Chuck, of swing. Chuck Berry, the father of rock and roll. Oh, yeah. He definitely held his own with Chuck Berry. Because it is a direct influence on Chuck.
4: And,
2: and Berry admitted it to the day he
4: died. This was who he was trying to be at the beginning. There's a, there's a particular Louis Jordan song that I don't think I've heard where his guitar player Essentially, plays the Chuck Berry riff. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't heard this, but I, I've read about this in books.
2: There, there, I've I've read that reference too, and I don't have the song title handy. But yes, I've heard it. There is a song where where the Johnny B. Good riff can be heard uh, uh, on a Louis mm-hmm. Jordan record. And and although a lot of Chuck Berry's guitar styling comes straight from T-Bone Walker as well, so you could see Berry's a cross between T-Bone Walker and Louis Jordan. But either way, I mean. Uh, the impact of Louis Jordan cannot be understated. I, I mean, there I was know, one year. It's astonishing how, how much he's been forgotten. Yeah, it really is. I mean, this is a guy who had the number one record on the R&B charts for like 45 weeks out of 52 in 1946. <laughs> that, that <laughs> you know, and was and was uh, doing damage on the pop charts as well. The one last thing I want to mention about him is uh, his song, uh, Run Joe. He, he had this pretty significant Caribbean influence in his music. Right, Calypso. He was big with Calypso. And he got to tour the Caribbean, too, with his band. Yeah. Uh, making him
4: the father of the record industry down
2: there. I mean, he, he was immense in Jamaica. It's kind of the grandfather of Ska. and great-grandfather yeah. of record, in a way. Well, yeah. yeah.
4: He, he, and, he and a couple of other people. But yeah, I mean, it was like, Wow, American people are imitating us.
2: This is significant. We must be doing something right. And and for a small scene like that, I mean a really small population compared to, to you know the rest of North America, that's a huge impact. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, I, I think I think the moral of the story is listen to Louis Jordan and and learn about this guy cuz this guy's an immensely important American musical figure and it's really rewarding stuff. I think one other factor that sort of hurt him was he was not self-consciously artistic. He was always looking to create a good time and make dance right. music and make fun and and you know it's the classic sort of Bob Hope never wins an Oscar kind of thing where the you know right. somebody like Robert Johnson who's very dour and and dealing with the darker side of subject matter is lionized, uh, but the the clown is is you know denigrated and i think i think that's well the clown played. always winds up hurting himself
4: i mean that's that's one of the basic rules of show business when the they cr- stop
2: laughing you're dead <laughs> yes and and you know jordan's career died hard uh at the turn of the 50s and you know the rest of his life he lived till 1975 couldn't buy a hit and uh you know like toured the caribbean and and had a tour of england and some other things which just could not even did a record uh, with Quincy Jones in 57, um, yeah, trying to recreate uh, his his old hits. But with updated arrangements, I mean, it's interesting to hear like Mickey Baker and King Curtis backing up Louis Jordan uh, in the late <laughs> 50s. That stuff is worth the listen. And the last guy I wanted to, to talk about just a little bit uh, was Nat King Cole because his trio on the West Coast, uh, before he becomes, you know, the pop sensation with nature boy and everything uh cole did a lot to develop r&b uh, the smoother wing of it right well he
4: had that you know guitar piano bass trio thing going and initially he didn't want to sing which i find very amazing but uh, he i can understand what he was thinking because uh, i got this um these recordings of the spirituals, uh, not spirituals, swing the um, jazz, at the Philharmonic, uh, on which he and Les Paul and a bunch of you know, I think Lester Young, all these people, they're just long jams. They're like six, nine-minute jams that were recorded live at these uh, at these concerts on the West Coast, and Cole really does rip up everything when he's playing the piano. I was I'd never heard him in that kind of context he was always a sort of a uh, uh, cocktail performer in my mind but uh, not only did did he kickstart this trio thing which uh later gave birth to uh charles brown and and many other uh, imitators in the early 50s but uh, he also broke the color barrier unlike charles brown he wouldn't play south central he wanted to play Hollywood, and he did. And that yeah. was a really cheeky thing for a black man to do.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, and and had a immensely successful, although canceled because it couldn't find a sponsor, but in the, I think, '57, had the most popular TV show, variety show on the air. Uh, and, right, and- which, which caused a lot of problems for the network because the Southern affiliates wouldn't go for it yeah and and he couldn't find a sponsor at the time but yeah king cole nat king cole is somebody else i mean uh an honest to god jazz virtuoso as a pianist he didn't get to record a lot of that stuff but uh a fair amount and his pop stuff is great if you go in for that but his well the early know, pop stuff i'm i'm not real big on the capital years but well, he still had some fun hits, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the late 40s and early 50s is, is best period for pop, but the early 40s, mid 40s, uh, that stuff with his trio is absolutely essential R&B yep. uh, and, and a key. And I think that pretty much wraps up our show. So Yeah, we got a lot of the people hiding in the shadows covered there. So good good yeah. work. Thank you. And so we'll be back. We want to do one more episode this season. We're going to talk about uh, Bob Wills and Milton Brown and Western Swing and the final episode of season two of Let It Roll. So join us for that. Thanks for listening. Next week, Ed and I will wrap up our prehistory of rock and roll with a look at country music in the 1930s and 40s, cowboy singers, Western Swing and the birth of Honky Tonk. Be sure and check out our website at Podcast.com to access the YouTube playlists and hear the music we're talking about. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more about the history of rock and roll, buy Ed's book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920-1963, published by Flatiron Books, available on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and anywhere fine books are sold.
0: of households that start the year with Peloton are still active a year later.
3: All because of a fancy bike?
0: not just bikes we also make a rower have you ever tried to row too hard not with form assist it actually teaches you how to row so it doesn't matter if you're a first-time rower or a seasoned pro peloton can help you achieve your fitness goals 92 percent stick with it so can you try the peloton row risk-free with a 30-day home trial new members only not available in remote locations see additional terms at onepeloton.com home-trial